0: If you have your copy of Scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. We're in Colossians 2, and we're picking back up where we left off about four weeks ago, Colossians 2. We're going to look this morning at verses 11 through 15, and I know that you'll find it helpful, and I'll find it helpful to know that you have your copies of Scripture open and that you're reading along with me. Colossians 2, verses 11 to 15, and before we read God's Word, let's go to Him in prayer and ask his blessing on the preaching of it and the receiving of it this morning. Let's pray. Father, we come now to um, what you have deemed one of the most important things that we could ever experience in life, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of your word, the Proclamation of the good news, for you have said that by it men are brought from death to life, by it we are sanctified and built up, we are taught, we are warned and we are admonished in all wisdom that every man may be presented to Christ Jesus in all wisdom and so our God we pray that this, what we are about to do would be um, seen and understood to be a supernatural thing, seen and understood to be what it is that The risen Christ is proclaiming himself and his gospel through the preaching of your word. We pray that you would grant grace to each one of us to receive your word with meekness, to treasure it, to lay it up in our hearts that we may not sin against you. We thank you for the privilege, Father, of coming again and sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to him, pulling away from the cares of the world and the busyness and the anxieties and the concerns of life, and hearing the voice of the Son of God say, come unto me and rest. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would execute your office as the great prophet of your church this morning, that you would speak loudly, that your voice would work effectively in us through the ministry of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Colossians 2, beginning in verse 11, Paul has been telling us that the fullness of the Godhead is in Jesus Christ. And now he says, In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, this week I was looking at one of my old friends, who's an unbeliever, had to say about where they were in life. This person is now a comedian, making a career of comedy, and they said, in passing, I need something more in my life. I need something more, and so I've decided to hike the Appalachian Trail, and after that I'm thinking about going to hike this big mountain in Alaska. I need something more in my life. There's something built into every person in this world that is crying out for more. There's something that's built into us, intrinsic to us, intrinsic to what it means to be an image bearer of God that makes us constantly say, more, The book of Ecclesiastes says this when he says the eye is never satisfied with seeing, the ear is never satisfied with hearing, the fire that burns is never satisfied, the earth that receives the rain is never satisfied. There's something in this world that is constantly saying more. And so what God does in the gospel, what God does in Jesus Christ is he puts all that is necessary for the fullness and the moreness that we need in his son in the gospel and what Paul has been saying to the Colossians is that everything necessary for you, everything necessary for your life, whoever you are, is found in the fullness that is in Jesus. It's not found in children. It's not found in spouses. It's not found in philosophy. It's not found in mysticism. It's not found in rules and regulations. It's not found in dietary laws. It's not found in any of those things. It's not found, Paul will say, in making up rules for a moral life. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. It's found in Jesus. God has so constituted His Son as the Savior in whom all the fullness of God dwells bodily that in Him is everything that we need for more. And so Paul is going to tell the Colossians, because the Colossians here are in danger of being deceived. We are a gullible people. I don't know if you think of yourself as a gullible person. We are gullible people. I think the Bible very clearly sets that out. And Paul sees them as Uh, in danger of being led astray and deceived by philosophy and other things. Well, we have Christ, but then we need these other things. We need these other things for fullness of life, for uh, the satisfaction, the moreness that we long for. And so in verse 9, Paul says, Look, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. That Because Jesus is so united to the divine son of God and his human nature, because he is God and man, he has an infinite supply of everything necessary because he's God. The fullness of God dwell in him bodily. It's one of the most amazing verses in all scripture. And Paul says in verse 10, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority that Somehow, by union with Jesus, we have received of that fullness, that we have received of everything that's in Jesus Christ, that it has become ours by virtue of our union with him. And so now, in verses 11 through 15, Paul's going to do two things. First, he's going to tell us that the fullness of Christ is experienced through our union with him. And then he's going to tell us that the fullness of Christ is grounded in the sufficiency of the work he did at the cross. Fullness of Christ by virtue of our union with him. Fullness of Christ sufficient in what he does at the cross. And notice what he says in verse 11. He says, in him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Verse 12, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith. And so Paul in verses 11 and 12 is going to tell us that by virtue of our union with Jesus, everything that we need becomes ours. You've heard me say that repeatedly over the last couple weeks, that by virtue of union with Jesus, everything we need for fullness becomes ours. Um, Perhaps the illustration of the space station is helpful. If uh, the space shuttle goes up and and it comes to the space station and it connects to it so that people can go on and off on that space station, that is a picture of union. We are united to Jesus so that the fullness that's in him becomes ours. We died with him. We were buried with him. We were raised with him. Now, Paul is going to put this under the figure of circumcision and baptism. This is complicated. The Bible's not easy. He's going to put it under the figure of circumcision because circumcision was the old covenant sign. The sign that said you belong to the covenant people. Baptism, the new covenant sign that says you belong to the covenant people. Both circumcision and baptism were pointing to the same thing. The death and the burial of Jesus. They were signs. The bloody circumcision, the cutting away of uh, the, the small foreskin was a sign of what Jesus would accomplish at Calvary. And so notice what Paul says. He says to the Colossians, In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now I know that we are far removed from discussions about the religious significance of circumcision, the Colossians were not. In fact, the Colossians had at their door, threatening them, Jewish legalists who were saying things like, well, yes, you need Christ, and you need these ceremonial, ritualistic things from the Old Covenant, like circumcision. And what Paul is saying to the Colossians is, look, you don't need the mark of circumcision. You need and you received what circumcision actually pointed to. I don't know how many of you reading through the Old Testament have come across that phrase where uh, Yahweh keeps telling Israel, get a circumcised heart, get a circumcised heart, get a circumcised heart. I will give you a circumcised heart. Circumcise your hearts. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. What God is saying is that what that sign pointed to, pointed to the reality of the sin, the body of sin being cut away the creature being made new. It's regeneration. It's the renewing of the nature. It's God dealing with the very deep problem of sin in his people, and he deals with it through the death of Christ. Notice what Paul says. He says, you were circumcised. He's talking about spiritual circumcision. You could put in there, you've received the new birth with the new birth made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now here Paul is saying, that the circumcision of Christ was his bloody death on the cross. It was the entire flesh of Jesus that was cut away. When our sins were laid on him and God crushed his son at Calvary, he was being circumcised. It was a bloody judgment. The sin was being removed, Paul says, notice in verse 11, by putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ that what was necessary for us to receive the spiritual circumcision of our hearts was the bloody judgment death of Jesus at Calvary. And that in Him, Him representing us there on the cross, Him there on the cross and us with Him, Him dying for us, Him being made sin for us, the body of the sins of our flesh were put on Him, and when He died under that judgmental circumcision death, we received the benefits of that because of union with Him. So that what happened to him, happened to him for us, and happened to us in him. Union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection makes everything in Jesus really and truly yours. Union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection makes everything that's true about Jesus really and truly yours in him. Now... You may say, well, I don't understand this. Why this bloody judgment? Why this bloody circumcision death? Why speak about Jesus in that way? Why was that necessary? Because in order to deal with your sins, death had to occur. Let me read a quote to you that I find very powerful and very helpful. William Still says, We must not think of our salvation as anything less than a complete exchange. There is nothing good in fallen Adam He is totally and incurably corrupt in all his parts and passions. There is therefore now no hope for him. Death is the only cure. Let me say that again. What Paul is saying in Colossians 2, what William still is reflecting on is that we are so full of sin by nature. We are so far gone by nature that the only thing that can cure us is death. Notice this. He says, For it is by the death only that Adam can be saved from this fallen self and become a new creation. Paul elsewhere in Romans 6 will talk about this. He'll say, when we died in Christ, we died to the dominion and power of sin. He died to sin's rule and dominion. He broke the power of sin. He entered into death for us. And in defeating death by himself, tasting death for us, he did the one thing that necessary. We had to die. Death was the judgment sentence on Adam and all of his descendants. Death was the inevitable outcome of Adam's disobedience. The only way our hearts get cured is through a death and a consequent resurrection. And so Paul says, in him, in him you were crucified. Listen to what still says. Christ took Adam's place, not only as his substitute to take away his sin, but as his representative to crucify his fallen nature. That is in his sinless body he may slay and remove the old and by his resurrection replace it with the new. Jesus accomplishing what that sign of circumcision was, was accomplishing the need to put to death the body of the sins of our flesh. And so what Paul is telling the Colossians, and listen very carefully, what he's saying is, what you need more than anything for wholeness is the body of the sins of your flesh dealt with. That's What my friend needs. My friend who is laughing their way through life, saying, I need something more. I need something more. My friend needs the body of the sins of flesh. Dealt with, and Paul says, listen, to the Colossians, to you, that's been done. In him, we have been circumcised with the circumcision not made with hands, by the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh and the circumcision of Christ. And then notice, Paul now says, having been buried with him in baptism. What you had in circumcision was death. What you had here in baptism is burial. And then he'll say being raised in faith in the resurrection. It, what Paul is saying is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus provides everything for you in union with him under the figure of circumcision and baptism. And then faith that unites us to him is what we need for all that fullness to come to us. Notice what Paul says, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now what Paul's going to do as he's been moving, moving, moving to the resurrection of Jesus because it's in the resurrection of Jesus that we have life and newness and wholeness. We are brought back from the dead in him. When Jesus came out of the tomb, You came out with him if you're a believer. That's the Bible's testimony. When he came out of that tomb, we came out with him into a world of grace, into a world of newness and wholeness and fullness, into a world in which everything that God knows that we need and that we even feel our need for so often has been accomplished for us in the resurrection of Jesus. And it's by believing that. You see, what... Paul wants, what, why Paul says all these things is he wants your mind to be filled with these so that your faith can lay hold of them and hold them firm, so that your faith will lay hold of these things. Maybe you're here and, and you've never held, laid hold of that. Chances are good some of you in this room have never laid hold of that, have never seen your need for that. Fullness is not found in what you do. It's not found in trying harder or trying to be a good person or any of those things fullness is found in what Jesus has accomplished outside of you and by virtue of union with him through faith, it becomes ours. And notice how Paul puts it. He says, through the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, Paul is going to move here and he's going to say, look, what we needed was a power, a resurrection power that brought him from the dead to bring us from the dead. I love Ephesians 1, 15 and following, because Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know the exceeding greatness of the power that works in us who believe according to the mighty power that God worked in Jesus when he raised him from the dead. The same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead is at work in you by faith who are united to him. It is the mighty power of God. And notice what Paul says. He says that this power working in you by union with Jesus through his resurrection is necessary because, verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Again, unless someone outside of us came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. No, it's one thing to tell somebody what they need to do. It's another thing to tell somebody what has been done for them when they couldn't do it for themselves. That's what Paul's saying. Paul's not telling you what you need to do. He is telling you what has been done for you when you couldn't do it for yourself. It is the mighty working of God who raised Christ from the dead because we were dead. Listen, here's the glory of the gospel. God comes to dead sinners who can do nothing spiritually, and he brings them back to life by killing his son and raising him again. God comes to dead sinners who can't do anything good and he brings them back to life spiritually by killing his son and raising him back to life again. And the power that is invested in the resurrection of Jesus is there for us. Paul says, you want fullness? Do you want wholeness? Do you want something more? It is in the resurrection of Jesus. It's in that power, that endless, infinite support, uh, supply of power for us that's in God. And notice... I think it's interesting that he speaks of it as the power of God because so often in Scripture, the power of God is something terrifying, isn't it? The power of God in a lightning storm can be so terrifying. Think how minimal that is. I remember as a kid, people would joke about God's bowling when there's lightning. How trite. What What a small display of God's power. The infinite God who spoke the world into existence out of nothing sends a lightning bolt and can frighten everybody in this room. He could put a lightning bolt right through this room, frighten everybody in it with that tiny glimpse of his power. His power can be so frightening, but now in the gospel, the thing that should frighten us is now, in the words of John E.D., being wielded mercifully for our salvation. The thing that justly ought to frighten us in the gospel is being wielded mercifully for our salvation. God's power... Because of what Jesus accomplished and our union with him is being all focused in on you and making you complete in Jesus. That's a beautiful thought because I don't know about you, but I often feel weak and helpless. I often don't know what to do. I often don't know how to get over some particular sin. I often find myself struggling with how to grow in um, my relationship with my wife with friends, and anything in life. And God says, everything that you need is in the resurrection of my son for you. You died with him, you were buried with him, you rose with him. And so the fullness of Christ is found in union with him. But secondly, it's as if Paul can't talk enough about the cross, so now what he's going to do is he's going to take a very focused look and say, do you want to know what Christ has done for you? Do you really want to know the secret?" to Christian living. And in verses 14 and 15, he's going to tell us, actually beginning at the end of verse 13, he's going to tell us the secret. These, Let me say before we read this, the biggest application you can take away from here today is that when you go from this place, you go knowing these things, believing what we're about to talk about, holding firmly to them, meditating on them, returning to them, living in light of them. Because at the end of the day, what we're about to read in these two verses is the biggest and greatest of all the things that could ever be done for us. Listen to what Paul says in verse 13. First, he says, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses. I was witnessing to a girl recently who wanted to talk about religion. A very bright girl. And she would raise ethical objections, and we would go back and forth on philosophy and ethics. And I finally looked at her and I said, listen, the only thing, the only question that matters is how will you have sins forgiven? The only question that matters is how will you have sins forgiven? That is the great question of the ages. How will you, and now I'm asking you, how will you have sins forgiven? forgiven. And Paul tells us, he says, you were made alive together with him and God forgave us all trespasses. And now he's going to tell us that the fullness of Christ is found in the sufficiency of the cross. Notice what he says. The sins were forgiven because God canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. I love the hymn, the line, my sins not in part, but the whole were nailed to the cross and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Paul is going to say that the sin, that that mountain of sin that we have, maybe you think about particular sins. Maybe you carry the guilt of one or two big sins that you've committed. Maybe you carry the guilt of lots of little sins that form a huge mountain against you. God, this verse says, has a ledger book of everything that we've done wrong book of Revelation says there's books. They're open. Everything's accounted for. Nothing, nothing passes the all-seeing eye of the infinite creator of the universe. And yet, Paul says he took that handwriting of requirement that was against us, all of our violations of the moral law he took, and he nailed it to the cross. What was against us, what stood against us, what kept us from knowing him and loving him, what kept us from being filled by him, Can I say that? That the singular thing that keeps us from finding more, the satisfaction that we need in our hearts, is the sin that separates us from God. And God has taken that out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I love the way that William still says, I quoted to this earlier, our sins were literally bled to death in the expiring death of Jesus on the cross. Again, he says the God-man takes all the sin of his children and he dissolves them into nothingness by the moral purity of his life poured out unto death. The God-man dissolves your sins into nothingness by the moral purity of his life, dissolved, poured out unto death. And so, Paul is going to say that the first great thing that God removes, the first great thing that God dealt with in the death of his son was our sin. And that's usually the big thing. When we think about the cross, we usually think one dimension. We usually don't take the diamond and turn it and look at all the facets and look at all the different things that Christ accomplished. Generally, we think sin's forgiven is the only thing that happened at the cross. And Paul is going to tell us there's something else. There's something... That even lies behind that. Notice verse 15, where he says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in Him. You have two things, two things that hinder us from knowing God and being filled with the fullness of God. The first is our sin, the guilt, the shame, the condemnation your own conscience, the knowledge of your standing before God. And the second is the accuser of the brethren, the evil one. There's a devil. He walks about like a roaring lion. Peter tells us we're to resist him steadfast in the faith. He seeks whom he may devour. He is the accuser of the brethren. He is the one who stood before Joshua the high priest and pointed out his dirty garments. He is the one that constantly, constantly accuses and condemns true believers. That's Satan's full-time job. He's an accuser. That is his job, that is his calling. God has come in Jesus Christ, and he has dealt with our sin by nailing the handwriting of requirement against us to the cross, and on the cross, as Jesus Christ hung there, without any hands or feet, because they were nailed to the tree, he disarmed He disarmed the forces of evil that lay beyond the fallenness of this world, that lay behind everything in this world, that is fallen and evil and rebellious. Now, let me say this. Jesus didn't need to conquer Satan for himself. Can I say that as emphatically as I can this morning? Jesus could have obliterated Satan in an instant. Satan is a creature. Jesus is God. Jesus did not need to defeat Satan for himself. We needed Christ to defeat Satan for us. We needed Christ to defeat Satan the evil one, to disarm him. Notice what Paul says is a beautiful picture here in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, putting them to an open shame, triumphing over them in it. Satan, according to our Lord, is like a strong man. And he's got his house in order. He's got his captives. He's got the whole world under his sway, John says. And Jesus enters into that house, the stronger than he, and he binds him, by hanging on the cross, and he dies for his people. He dies for us. We were slaves of the evil one. We were under the dominion of sin and Satan by nature. I don't care if you don't feel that way. I care if you've never felt that way. That's the reality. You were slaves of sin and Satan. And the captain of our salvation comes into time, and he hangs on the cross, and he disarms the evil one, And he takes to himself the host of those that he has redeemed for himself, those that he represented. He releases us from the power of Satan. He frees us from the fear of death. He frees us from the guilt and the condemnation of sin by himself being made sin for us and having his heel bruised by the evil one. And he rises again and he leads his people out every time someone is converted. He leads his people out in mighty triumph. I don't know about you, but I have at least on several occasions, been witnessing to people and seeing that they're very close to the kingdom and God at work in their lives and then suddenly a series of events keeping them from coming to Christ, keeping them from being released from the dominion of Satan, as if Satan and the principalities and powers were working overtime. But Jesus came to save his people from their sins, his name was Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And he leads out in triumphant procession like a king in the ancient Near East who has won a battle and bringing the goods and everything that he has plundered, he brings the redeemed with him in triumphant procession as the conqueror and the victor over sin and Satan and the world. And this means, as we close, this means that everything you need for fullness is in what Jesus did at the cross. Everything you need for fullness. A better job will not produce that fullness. A more rigorous lifestyle, asceticism, will not produce that fullness. Um, Going back to school and getting a degree in philosophy will not produce that fullness. Knowing what Jesus has done at Calvary And in the resurrection, for us, us in him, doing everything, removing everything that hinders us from knowing God and from resting in who he is for us, is here. And I think that what we need to see as we close is that as we go through our days, we need to believe this. You know, again, I've said this to you in the past. I actually think this is quite hard to believe. Probably some of you here that don't actually believe this. We are called to believe, to believe what we're reading here, that Christ has done for us. Believing is resting. It's receiving it. It's saying, I'm not going to keep trying to atone for my sins. I'm not going to try to overcome the temptations of the evil one in my own strength. I'm not going to try in my own effort to solve this unsurmountable obstacle against me. God has done that. He has taken it out of the way. God and you are friends. The handwriting of requirements that was against you, if you're in Christ, has been taken away. God is your friend in Christ. You are reconciled to Him. Satan has no dominion over you. Sin has no dominion over you. You now belong to the captain of your salvation, Jesus Christ. I think Paul is leading us into this because there's going to be one more warning and then lots of applications. This is the center. This is the center of Scripture. It's the center of what you need for fullness and wholeness and something more. I don't know if you're like my friend. You're here and you're just thinking, you know, I need more. I need something more. Paul says everything we need for fullness is in the finished work of Jesus in His death, burial, and resurrection for us. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are often dull and cold and we are often forgetting about these amazing truths of what you have accomplished for us in Christ. And We thank you, Father, that in Him we have... Uh, received a new nature that we have been brought from death to life we pray if there are any here that have not experienced that this morning that today they would know that if there are any here that have forgotten the greatness of that that you would remind them father we pray that you would give us that precious gift of faith to rest in the savior and what he has done for us in removing that legal debt that was against us and in overthrowing the forces of evil satan and demonic forces that hate you and that hate us and hate your church we thank you lord jesus that we are triumphant in you and that there is an everlasting source of life and fullness in this gospel for us we pray that you would make us to know it more and we pray these things in jesus name amen